Adventure Scrolling, our new concept. We are going to go through the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, one short story at a time, and share our knowledge with you. Uh, I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hessenflow. And I'm Pam Bador. And we are together separately to discuss this because these stories are so great and we need something to discuss this week for sure. Right, Pam? That's right. It seems like all of our conversations surround plague and pandemic. And I thought, you know, a little mystery and murder might be a good change of pace. And the beautiful part about our series is that you can follow along. The listener can choose the next short story and, and be prepared for our next conversation. Because we're going to do this every day, as long as it takes. We've got 52 short stories to get through, folks. Actually, 56 short stories. 56. And Ooh. should we run out of short stories? We can always turn to the four novels. There you go. This is exciting. Pam, you are a professor at the University of Connecticut. Your, your big study is in dystopia, but you study detectives as well, right? I certainly do. I actually specifically study 19th century detectives. Um, That's my first book was about detective dime novels. And I teach courses in detective fiction, including a course on Sherlock Holmes. And I'm currently working on a project about contemporary mother detectives. So yes, I love detective fiction. So you are definitely our expert on this, and you are going to take us through this and show us the way. So our central question, the thing that we want to ask you, the listener, and you absolutely need to be a part of this. You can give us a voicemail and answer our central question. Send us an email and, and tell us all about. The question is, what makes Sherlock Holmes the most popular detective? Why is it that we see so many references to Sherlock Holmes all throughout literature for this you know, a long time? That's our big question. But I want to start with, Chip, where, where are you with Sherlock Holmes? What's your history with Sherlock Holmes? Well, my history with Sherlock Holmes is this was my first time I ever sat down and read these stories. So wow. the beautiful part about it is, is I knew about them. I have plenty of references. I mean, they're all around us. I know the characters, but I never really sat down and, and, and went through the stories one by one. So I look forward to, to sort of exploring them. I look forward to your perspective as, as reading these for the very first time. Now, Pam, you've read all of the Sherlock Holmes and you know these backwards and forwards, right? I mean, backwards and forwards. I actually, I know them well. I've read them several times and I teach a number of them. At the same time, I often feel like a novice in Sherlock Holmes uh, when I actually go to a Sherlock Holmes Scion Society meeting. Now, this mm. is something you may or may not know about. Do you know about the Sherlock Holmes Scion Societies? No. Okay. Please tell us well, more. <laughs> this is how popular Sherlock Holmes is. 130 years after the first story comes out, we still have throughout the world hundreds of groups of people who get together once a month or once a term to talk about Sherlock Holmes. So I've been a member of the Men of the Tour Sherlock Holmes Scion Society uh, in Connecticut for, oh, I don't know, six or eight years. And at that group, I just have barely read these stories, 
the people in that group are so expert on every little detail of Sherlock Holmes. People study Holmes in this incredibly detailed way. And they get together and is it a dress up kind of a situation or is it a, a lecture? My friends, and... <laughs> my uh -huh. friends, it's a dress in Victorian garb kind of situation. Now, wow. I must admit, I'm not much for dressing up, but I think you guys would like a science society. People dress in absolutely Victorian clothing. Uh, you have a super nice dinner. There's always a quiz. So there's one short, short story or novel that's on the agenda. You have a very, very detailed quiz on that. And then there's lectures, um, discussion, and excellent food and drink. Sounds oh, that's fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. <laughs> so we're, we're forming our own little society here where we are going to go through the adventures of Sherlock Holmes one short story at a time. We're going to start today with the first one, A Scandal in Bohemia. This was published in July of 1891. And 1891 is kind of significant in history, right, Pam? That's right. We're at the very end of the Victorian period. And this is a time of substantial tension because we have so many new technologies and you're going to see those technologies referenced in these stories. And people have this great optimism about progress. We've got railroads, telegraphs, telephones, all kinds of new transportation. At the same time, income disparity is at its highest point ever at that point. And some people are really anxious. Some people are really scared of what's happening with a globalized world, with additional urbanization. And so it's a time where Sherlock Holmes provides this really interesting escape, but also a lot of cultural critique of the society in London at that moment. Sounds a lot like the 2020s, where there's so much technology, so much opportunity, and such a huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots. Seems like not much has changed in the last 120 <laughs> years. Absolutely. And that's why I feel like when I, when I teach these stories, students, many students haven't read them before, although everyone has seen movies or television shows featuring Sherlock Holmes. People are always surprised by how they have sort of dated language, obviously, 130 years old, but they still speak to people even today. Chip, you want to tell us about a scandal in Bohemia? Sure. Um, what we need to know is there are, um, this is a story uh, where Sherlock Holmes is hired by a, a gentleman who um, is going to get married. And uh, there is a scandalous picture that, that uh, because he had an affair with a person that he would like to recover because he feels it will ruin his um, marriage. And Watson is going to come in and, and, and meet Sherlock Holmes um, to, I guess, help solve this mystery. One of my favorite parts of the Sherlock Holmes stories is the perspective of Watson and how Watson is the narrator of these. And he's lending his perspective so that we have a picture of who this master detective is. And I love how the author is publishing these monthly and publishing them as if Watson was the publisher telling us these stories. Pam, do you think that the story would have been different if it was a first person Sherlock Holmes telling us about his tales? 
Well, my friend, we can actually answer that question with a lot of detail because Conan Doyle actually did write two stories that are first-person Sherlock Holmes stories. And they're really? not very good. <laughs> I'll just be <laughs> So we can absolutely see. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that Holmes do does remain so popular. Watson is the best narrator ever, right? Because he's not as smart as Sherlock Holmes, but he's smart. But he's mm -hmm. that the reader can actually sort of compete with as we set up this mystery and you're wondering, ooh, what's going to happen? How, where is this hidden picture? How are we going to find it? We are sort of competing with Watson because we know we can't compete with Holmes, right? And so that is like Watson's look at Holmes and he sort of idolizes Holmes. Oh, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we might end up doing the same thing. But he provides us that perspective. And Chip, one of the things that comes up at the beginning of the story is Sherlock tells Watson how Watson can see but not observe. And, and that seems to be a, a central idea to the idea of Sherlock Holmes's ability to observe a situation and to identify seemingly miraculously what's happening where Watson is befuddled by this, right? Yeah, it's just like an absurd level of um, organization, an absurd level of observation. It's like, of course, I have no no cards and all of this stuff. It's over there. It's in between this. Hand that to me so I can recall. Watson is is ultimately by being able to have this conversation with with uh, Sherlock Holmes puts him in a position where I mean he is almost a god. He. He certainly um, knows so much more than the average person. How many stairs did you did you uh, climb up uh, to get to my, my flat? Well, of course, <laughs> that's right. Of course, of course, it is. And yet, you've walked it every day, and you've never counted them. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, and that's something that Sherlock loves to say to Watson. And you know, really, he's saying it to us. You mm -hmm. see, but you do not observe. And so he makes this distinction. We all see stuff around us but we're not really looking. And I always have my students, I give them like this task to go out to a place on campus for 10 minutes and see what they can see and see what they can observe. And you guys, it's impossible. We can't make these kinds of crazy deductions that Holmes makes, but they're fun to read about. Okay, but the deductive reasoning here is, is something that we study and we try to teach our students, to try to teach our kids to be observant, to make those leaps. Is Holmes, you said the word impossible, is Holmes <laughs> a, a Mary Sue? Is he impossible in this? Is he a Mary Sue? Um, <laughs> possibly. I mean, this, this trope, I mean, it becomes a trope because Sherlock Holmes is so good at it. You know, it's there's plenty of comedy uh, situations where Batman and Robin sit down and uh, they're they're throwing random clues together and they go oh but of course it's this part right here <laughs> yes <laughs> of course although it is interesting because Sherlock these stories the Sherlock Holmes stories did end up getting used in early forensic science so. Early detectives actually read these books as part of their training, believe it or not. 
in forensics. Because of course you'll notice like when, when Watson walks in and Sherlock like notices uh, the dirt on his pant cuff or whatever, um, mm-hmm. those kinds of details, those end up being how we solve mysteries in the sort of CSI model. And so there is a lot of forensics, even though there's some sort of humor around it, just as we're noting, those are forensic details. And that deduction does end up actually having a place in real life crime solving. Interesting. How interesting that art has imitated life and life has imitated art in such a very intimate way with that. So we get to our story. We have Count von Kram, who has had an affair with Irene Adler. And von Kram states the relationship becoming public would doom his marriage. Uh, How does this social class between von Kram and Irene Adler affect their relationship? Chip, what do you think? Do you think that the social class between Von Krum and Irene Adler reflects a, a difference in their relationship and, and how that affects the story? That's an interesting question because uh, he has a count. It sounds like he's got some kind of, um, you know, he has a title. And she is but an actress, Steve, from New Jersey, living in London. <laughs> <laughs> I love that from New Jersey. That's, that's I, just I love so that perfect. detail. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he ran and goes, oh, we need a state. New Jersey, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today there we go. Of course, New York, but no, New Jersey at that time. But she is uh, but a regular person. I, I certainly think this is one of the oddities of this story because, you know, it's, it's such a scandal. Oh, my goodness. Uh, a, a man had an affair with a regular person, but now must marry. <laughs> well, and don't forget that he is about to become the king of Bohemia. So you get the feeling he's in love with Irene Adler, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not quite sure how she feels about him because, of course, we only get the story from his perspective. But he's about to become a king. He wishes she could become his queen. But, of course, you can't marry an actress from New Jersey, uh-huh. the king of Bohemia. <laughs> and so it's funny, though, because, you know, you have to wonder, like, how much have things changed in these 130 intervening years? Would that relationship be really scandalous today? And uh, can, I, can I point to Prince Harry and, right? uh, and his <laughs> actress wife and how scandalous that has become? And, and, Absolutely. And where we're at with the class struggle in that family today is, is pretty striking with this. Again, reading this in 2020, we still have absolute references for something that we might think should be dated, but really isn't. It's amazing. It is amazing how many times we hear about Sherlock Holmes. And when we get into depth with it like this, we see these these links and how important this is to literature and uh, and society as a result. Sherlock Holmes develops an elaborate plan to determine where Irene Adler has hidden the photograph. Uh, did that plan work, Pam? Well, <laughs> sort of, right? So, and this is this is sort of a common um, trope in the Holmes stories. You're going to see this where. Sherlock Holmes realizes, oh, he's dealing with someone very smart and Irene Adler. So the King of Bohemia has tried to find the photograph and it's quite a large photograph, a cabinet picture. I don't, 
I can't quite picture what what size that is, but it's a big photograph. It's and, so big that she couldn't possibly be carrying it while she's outside of her apartment. And right. and I I want to know where she got this photograph and why she had it printed so big. It, it's <laughs> amazing to me to think of you know a portrait size, a poster size, not full. Steve, I've been to your house. <laughs> I've been to your house. You've, you've got this massive picture of you right over the fireplace. We all see it. <laughs> but you you do always you, make your... You and your hounds. <laughs> you make your blackmail pictures especially big. Everyone knows that. Anyway. <laughs> so we know that... So Sherlock Holmes, you know, he realizes, oh, this is a very smart opponent. And you'll notice that the story starts with the with the letter to Sherlock or the line to Sherlock Holmes. She is always the woman. That's a very important italicized article. The woman, because she's one of the very few people who outsmarts Sherlock, and she's a woman. So he comes up with a good plan, right? That he's going to get himself into her house. I love how he dresses as a nonconformist minister, and he, you know, he fakes this whole attack and so then he gets into his, her house and then he has Watson start a fire so that she will grab whatever's most important to her and he'll see where she's hidden it. So it's, I mean, it's a solid plan, right? Mm -hmm. But Irene recognizes him through his disguises. And I want you guys to keep an eye on Sherlock's disguises throughout these stories as we read them. Sherlock Holmes loves to be in disguise. Then I think we need to think about like what does that mean? What's the attraction of that? And so Irene recognizes him, even though Watson often doesn't. And so she ends up double-crossing him, outsmarting him. And uh, he finds he finds her hiding place. But when he returns, what's in that hiding place? Just a totally ordinary picture and a letter. Hmm. Not the black picture. One of my picture. favorite quotes about this <laughs> one of my favorite quotes about this is watson's admiration for holmes he says and i quote the stage lost a fine actor even as science lost an acute reasoner when he became a specialist in crime i think that the the costume thing is is sherlock holmes really wanting to be that actor and seeing in adler this this actress from New Jersey and really admiring her ability to, to become that actor is something that sparks his excitement as well. I love that reading, Steve. I think that's absolutely right. And this notion of performance is going to go all the way through. And this is a question for all detectives. Are all detectives sometimes performing? Is that one of the reasons that we like detective fiction so much? We like to see people pretending to be other people. Watson and Holmes both often refer to Sherlock Holmes cases. Uh, five were mentioned in this story. Uh, Chip, what do you think? Do you think that the casual mentions of the former cases is something that's impactful? That's an interesting question because what, what it establishes is that this is not his first case and that he, he has skills and that he's been performing them for a long, long time. But this is, you know, I'm, this is my first reading of a short story, so I don't have all those, have all the, the future stories to, to, to come back 
to the reference. So it, it says to me that, um, like I said, it, there's, there's an opportunity that, that he grew from you know, whatever point he, he, he started being this detective. Is it just good marketing on, <laughs> yes. on the part of the author? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But it's also, I think it's more than that, because you'll notice that, so two times in this story, he mentions other cases. So at one point, he talks about three other cases. Oh, you know, I haven't seen Sherlock much lately. He's been off doing these things. He went to Odessa in the case of the Trepoff murder. He cleared up the singular tragedy of the Atkinson brothers. And he also helped the reigning family of Holland. Then he also gives some of the cases really funny names. So when Holmes comes back and he talks about the Darlington substitution scandal and the Arnsworth Castle business, what are those stories? And let me tell you, Conan Doyle didn't write those stories ever. He just references them in passing. But guess what? If you look up those story titles, you're going to get tons of hits because those stories invite other people to write. So there is a ton of fan fiction of Sherlock Holmes. And a lot of people go through and pick out those titles from the actual canon and then write their own stories. That's exactly what fan fiction has done with so many stories after this exactly. the number of doctor who stories yes. where doctor who mentions some adventure that they had that was never on screen and and we the fans go aha somebody's <laughs> going to write that story and it might be a big finish audio production where we get to experience that adventure that's where this started that's exactly right exactly I'm right so intrigued by the the whole history of sherlock holmes mm -hmm. so Chip, was this a funny story? There was certainly lots of humor in, in it. And knowing where we are today and having a reference of a, 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 a number of genres, I, I kept thinking Batman 1966 throughout this entire uh -huh. um, uh, read. Because in, certainly the Batman series was campy. Uh, Adam West and Burt Ward play these like super straight characters who are... Uh, taking the the uh, the mystery at face value, but you know we're we're the audience. We're kind of laughing with them. Well, this was a different time. These these were serials that were coming out written, and you you couldn't help. I mean, I couldn't help but pick out just oh, there, there's some humor to them, and and they're sort of establishing what how a story should unfold. Um, the sort of the um, how it should begin, how the middle should come how the reveal should come and how it yeah. should end. I, and I do think these, I think one of the things that appeals to people is the humor. And I think you're exactly right, Chip. It's a very kind of humor, right? And so I really like the fact that the King of Bohemia is six foot six. And when he comes to Sherlock Holmes's office, he's wearing a mask. <laughs> Oh, that's right. <laughs> just, of course he is. Of no course. one would recognize. And of course, it, I mean, we recognize, <laughs> we notice someone is six foot six even today. But in Victorian period, you know, where everyone's three, four, five inches shorter. It's crazy, right? So this guy, this massive guy, is wearing a small mask and he's like, I can't reveal my identity. Um, you know, there's all these funny little details. And I think that Watson has such a, such a like, quaint but delightful sense of humor throughout these. Well, they, they're picking up, Sherlock Holmes picks up that the guy is from Germany, uh, uh, right. speaks German. 
because of his use of the, the language. Of course he does. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Linguistic <laughs> analysis. Absolutely. <laughs> so Irene Adler outsmarts Sherlock Holmes and gets away. But now, as you said, Holmes refers to her as the woman in italics, the word the. Tell us all about Irene's life and, and how, how this works into the Sherlock Holmes uh, future, Pam. Well, interestingly, this is the only time we're going to meet Irene in the 56 short stories and the four novels. This is her appearance. Isn't that sort of surprising to you, given if you've seen any movies, television shows, whatever, she's a major character in pretty much every movie. And she's such a she's strong a character yeah. as written. Yeah. She seems so important mm -hmm. that you would think that she would be the uh, foil to, to Sherlock Holmes throughout the stories. And this is the very first of the short stories. We never see her again. So. She is Car Carmen Sandiego. Yeah. You know, we're all, we're all waiting for her to show up. She's, she's Sherlock Holmes right. equal. Mm -hmm. Right. And she's never going to reappear. <laughs> I know it's a little bit sad, but it also um, it also creates this sort of invitation again to other people to write the stories, right? So Conan Doyle is writing these. He wrote sixty Sherlock Holmes stories, but there's a real invitation to ask other people to participate in a sort of communal construction of this world and of these characters. And I think we all have the one. And I think the rest of that <laughs> sentence is maybe it's the one that got away. Maybe uh -huh. it's not the one that we we fell in love with and, and we're married to and, and have a life with. Maybe it's the woman dot, 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 who got away. That is the theme here. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think? Do we, do we, are we ready for the second story in this short story collection, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes? The Red Headed League, Steve. That's the one we're going to come up we're going to come to tomorrow. So once again, you can join us. You should be a part of this conversation. Leave us a voicemail. Leave us an email. What are your thoughts? Our central question, our main question, what makes Sherlock Holmes the most popular detective? What is it about these stories that keeps you coming back for more and keeps the productions of movies and TV shows coming back for more? Pam, do you have anything else that you'd like to share before we uh, get ready for part two? Absolutely. I just wanted to invite, especially if you're a redhead, give us a thought because the Redheaded League is really, it's, it's the only story I can think of that focuses on the experience of being a redhead. So I'd love to hear from hmm. any listeners out there who have personally experienced that. Interesting. Intriguing. <laughs> I, I'm now I'm now even more ready for tomorrow morning where we get into part two, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the Redheaded League. Wow, this is exciting. I, I look forward to tomorrow. I want to thank everybody for listening to our first of our daily podcast. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Thank you for listening. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hessenflog. And I'm Pam Bador. We'll see you in the future. <laughs> <laughs>